Good morning. Today, today is the first Sunday after Christmas. All through Advent, these past weeks, we participated in hopeful waiting and longing for Jesus to be here. With each candle that we lit on the Advent wreath, the light of the coming Christ got brighter. Until finally, as the last thing that we did as an act of worship on the last day before Christmas, with the lights turned low, we take the fire from that center candle, the Christ candle, and we spread it across the sanctuary. The light of Christ goes out into the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Christ is here. He's here with us today in this warm building. He's here with us who are stuck outside in the bitter cold. He's here with us, his people around the world facing persecution day in and day out. We have a God who steps into our world in the form of a human baby, and he brings great hope. It's funny how with all of the bombast and chatter that accompany the days leading up to Christmas, the shopping, the concerts, and the family, it's not with more clamor that we celebrate this. Not an extravagant carol, but a serene ballad like Silent Night. In circles of people who opine about American Christian worship, there are quite a few people who say that this ritual that we do here, and is actually quite common across the country, they say that this ritual uh, brings too much sentimentality to a rather shocking story. Because what takes place on Christmas night, what we remember on Christmas night is a very shocking thing. The Savior of humankind, who is God himself, was born of a virgin in a barn. That is shocking. <laughs> That's not supposed to happen. And they say that this candlelight ritual washes over this event, this shocking world-changing events with warm and fuzzy feelings, and I think that there's some merit to that critique. Uh, because we do celebrate Christmas with warmth, and that moment is a particularly warm moment, and if we're not careful, that warmth that we're feeling can become an idol. It stops being about this Jesus, this Christ, who was born and becomes about us and what we're feeling in that moment. That's something we need to be worried about, we need to be concerned about, that we don't let ourselves go there. But I think that there's more to this particular moment, though, uh, than maybe first meets the eye. Because we are not merely a group of people conjuring fond emotion, but a people who make up a body 
the body of Christ, who are called to live differently than many of those around us. When our culture drives home a message that tells us to go and do and consume and hurry, we say no. The climax of our Christmas Eve liturgy is the most significant moment of that night, and that night is one of the most significant nights of our church year. And we say no to the clamor. In the middle of the frenzy of the holidays, we don't celebrate Christ's coming like you might a forceful wind or an earthquake or a fire much more like a still, small voice. We reject that hurry, and we reject the worry, because this baby that was born those many years ago, he brought with him the light that drives away darkness and despair. That ritual that we have is subversive. On the surface, it looks like warm and fuzzy sentimentality. But underneath it, it is so much more. That is what it is like with much of the book of Revelation, which we read this morning. On the surface, it looks like one thing. Underneath, it is so much more. I can imagine the range of reactions that we might have been experiencing in our pews today when we learned that we'll be reading from Revelation Uh, Some of us who consider ourselves to be rational, logical, entirely modern-minded people, the Revelation, the book of Revelation might seem like someone else's dream journal. You know, interesting read, kind of bizarre, uh, but really nothing of meaning. Others, other Christians, they see the book of Revelation as a secret code that we can unlock. They look to this book and then look to the news and say, ah, this event, this is a sign of the apocalypse. I want to take a moment here and ward you off of both of those extremes. One end is limited, I believe, by lack of imagination. The other end, I believe, is limited by a detachment from the current world in which we live. Does Revelation contain bizarre imagery? Yeah. Yeah, it does. But this does not render it insignificant. Does Revelation deal with allegory and symbolism about heaven and earth? Yes. But this does not mean it's some kind of prophetic puzzle for us to put together. When reading the book of Revelation, it's very important to remember that there are different books of the Bible that are written in different styles. So the book of Psalms, which we're very familiar with, that's written largely in the style of poetry. And you look to uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are written largely in the style of narrative. And we approach poetry differently than we do narrative. Now the book of Revelation is written in the style of apocalyptic literature. It's a style unto itself, it's its own genre. And the same way that we approach poetry different than narrative, We should approach apocalyptic literature appropriate to that genre. Now, it's hard for us to do that. There's not too much carryover in what we're doing today and how we communicate today and what the literature and the the, the novels and the cinema is like. There's not too much of a carryover. 
but it's helpful to know some things about it. Revelation is not the only place in the Bible where apocalyptic literature shows up. Uh, another very prominent spot is the second half of the book of Daniel. And it's a genre, it's a style of writing that comes out of oppression. And it's even more subversive than the, than, uh, the Christmas Eve liturgy that we have. It's meant to give hope to the oppressed, while at the same time looking harmless to the oppressors. So I said that there's not too many carryovers, and there isn't a perfect one, but I think the closest thing in our culture to it would be the slave songs from before the Civil War. You think of a song like Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. On one level, yes, it is about the prophet Elijah, and it is about the chariot that carried him off into heaven, and it is about the future of heaven that waits for us who follow Jesus today, on one level. On another level, it's about Swing Low, Sweet Harriet coming forward to carry people home to freedom in Canada. Can you see where the hope is there? It's something that cannot be crushed. And in the same way, Revelation is meant to instill hope among the oppressed. When Christianity burst onto the scene 2,000 years ago, it did so in a far-off province of the Roman Empire. The first Christians, they faced persecution in many places. At first, it was among uh, a Jewish religious elites, but it was not long before it came at systematic order from the empire itself. Rome, at the time, was experimenting with something called emperor worship. It said that their political leaders held a place in their pantheon of gods. And by the middle of the first century, it was no longer an experiment. It was the rule of the land. And to say that Caesar was not God, to say that there was God other than Caesar, was a crime punishable by death because it threatened order within the empire. And when the first Christians refused to participate in this Roman religion, they faced death indeed, oftentimes in horrific and gruesome fashion. This was a group in desperate need of hope. In our reading today, the author is given a vision about people who follow the Lamb and have endured persecution. He describes the scene as a great multitude standing before him. So many people that it couldn't be counted. They were coming from every nation, every tribe, every ethnicity, and spoke every language from every different culture. They were wearing white. They were holding palm branches. They were crying out, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Later, they are described as those who have come out of a great tribulation and their robes were white because they had been washed with the blood of that lamb. It goes on to say that God is sheltering them and protecting them and that the lamb is shepherding them towards the springs of living water 
where God wipes away every tear from their eyes. Now, what might this mean to a group of Romans coming along to try to eliminate some Christians? It probably wouldn't have meant much. I mean, look at the absurdity of it. This imagery is bizarre. Robes washed white with blood? It's not the way that it works. That's not the way that you get stains out. Ah, but what might this have meant to a group of persecuted Christians? A lot more than it would have to the Romans. The passage, like the slave songs, is beautiful in its subversion. Its message is that Rome does not win. Evil does not win. Death does not win. The winner is not the one who can wield the largest army or inflict the most pain or is willing to use force and brutality to get their way. The winner is the Lamb of God who spills his blood to save everyone who follows him. The people wearing white are described as having gone through tribulation. And based on other parts of Revelation, they're probably martyrs. A group of people to whom persecuted Christians at the time could certainly relate. But the ones in white aren't hiding in secret rooms. They're not tucked away in people's homes. They're out in droves to be seen by others. They're coming from all over the planet. Something is different about this group of people than the life of the martyr at the time. And they weren't wearing rags. They weren't trying to blend in, but just the opposite. They're noted for the whiteness of their robes and the waving of their palm branches. These palm branches, like the, the symbol on Palm Sunday, when the folks uh, laid down the palms before Jesus as he rode into the holy city. Palms are a sign of triumph. But martyrs lived a life that wasn't very triumphant, at least not according to the standards of the day. Yet here they are, standing in victory. And the robes they're wearing are white because white is the color of salvation. In many churches today, when folks are being baptized, they're asked to wear these white robes. Sometimes a pastor will wear a white robe called an alb to, to live into that symbol of baptism and that symbol of salvation, just like in this text here. But it's white its whiteness comes from a rather peculiar source. I mean, it comes from blood. But not their blood, although their blood was certainly shed. It comes from the blood of the Lamb who shed his blood for them. It's the blood of Jesus that makes their robes white. It is the blood of Jesus that gives them their salvation. It takes what is dirty and makes it clean. It's the blood of Jesus that takes that which is mucked up with sin and cleans it and gives it right back, transformed, restored, and redeemed. And what is life like for these triumphant and saved martyrs? Our passage ends by saying that they are before the throne serving God that God protects them from danger, and that the Lamb of God will be their shepherd who leads them to springs of living water. 
and God wipes away every tear from their eye. Theirs is now a life spent in worship, a life free of danger, a life free of sorrow. Can you see where the hope is in this for a persecuted church? Can you see that? Can you see how this would have encouraged them to endure through suffering? Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This passage that we read today, it takes that beatitude and shows what it's like as a vision. As you endure hardship, as you endure humiliation, as you endure violence and death, keep heart because you already have a place in the kingdom of God. This suffering is temporary. You will wear your salvation robes soon enough and hold your triumphant palm branches. The Lord is faithful. The Lord will protect you. The Lamb of God will be your shepherd. He will be your leader. So if this is what the passage might have meant to its first readers 2,000 years ago, what might it mean to us today? In some respects, it remains the same. The blood of the Lamb has been shed for you. And the glimpse of heaven that we got in the passage awaits for those who follow Jesus today. And if you want to be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, today is a very good day to start. You can find me after this and we'll talk. Or you can find any other Jesus follower here and you can talk with them. We want to help you. We want to be there with you. And also, reading this today for us, with an eye towards the persecuted, it can show us how hope works. Hope comes from the bottom. It lives among the lowly. It dwells among the weak. When the powerful say, you can't do that, hope says, watch me. Like the text we read today, like the slave songs, and like our Christmas Eve candlelight ritual, hope is subversive. It finds a way no matter what. It does what it needs doing. It says, I know the trials that lie ahead of me, and I think that those trials are worth it, because I know what lies beyond them. It says that 2,000 years ago, there was a baby born in Bethlehem, and that baby was the Lamb of God. His blood cleanses us from our sin. And a life spent with the Lamb of God as our shepherd is a life that leads towards those springs of living water. But hope is not only about eternity. It is not only about what awaits for us after death. It's far more than a good feeling and far more than uh, an intellectual belief. Hope is about being present and active right now. How do you think that the church survived those generations of persecution under the Roman Empire? The Romans were very good at killing. They're 
excellent at killing people. And yet, still, the church endured through that. Do you think it was only warm feelings and sound doctrine? No. Not only warm feelings and sound doctrine. Not with that alone. The first Christians were mocked for many reasons. Uh, Not the least of which was that many of the very first Christians were uneducated. They were poor. And with a few notable exceptions, I mean, that that mockery was based in truth. It was a, a, a religion, a faith of the downtrodden. It was not a faith of the upper class, at least not then. There's Roman intellectuals and powerful Romans recorded as mocking Christians, saying that it was the, the faith of uh, the kitchen. It was the faith of the shop, of the tannery, of the common folks, of the laborers, instead of what was pursued or per- perceived as being better than that, uh, the faith of the open forum, the faith of the academy. The early church was made up of downtrodden people, and it spread first from one downtrodden person to the next by the means of faithful witness. And it's out of this downtrodden ethos that the hands and feet of the early church could be seen doing the work of God. And that work was being done among the sick, being done among the untouchable, being done among the outcast. It thrived on the margins of society. Hope moved this group of lowly and persecuted people to take risks and become the tangible body of Christ in the world. We, too, can be that tangible body of Christ in the world today. We, too, can be filled with such hope that we are compelled into action. There is hurt and hardship around the world. There is hurt and hardship here in Lincoln, Nebraska. There is hurt and hardship in our own families. For many, the world is a dark and lonely place. But when hope takes action, the light wins. Like the candles on Christmas Eve, When we live into our faith, which is rooted among the downtrodden and persecuted, when we become agents of hope in our world, God's light shines brighter and darkness is cast out. Amen.